Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. I can't overstate what a wonderful set of friendships were formed around Harvey Milk and the sort of you know, life and death commitment that a large group of people had made that his work had to go on. It wasn't about me. I, I mean, these were my friends. We, we loved each other. But these were people of extraordinary talents. I mean, Dick Pavich was a brilliant, brilliant young man. Uh, Tim Wolford was a brilliant, brilliant young man. Gene Harris was brilliant. Carol Migdon, my God.
In this podcast, I've kept the focus on Harry because I think his story is so important and inspiring. He would have hated the attention, I'm sure. Being praised was actually painful for him. He was much more comfortable praising others, and he did so throughout our conversations. So today, we'll hear from some of the people who loved, laughed, worked, and sometimes fought with Harry Britt over the years. I'm Will Roscoe, and this is Give Him Hell Harry, the man who kept Harvey Milk's dream alive. Episode 7 Strength, Power, Beauty My name is Gwen Craig. I came to San Francisco in February of 1975. Gwen Craig was a delegate at the Democratic National Convention in 1980, and again in 1984, when she co-chaired the Lesbian and Gay Caucus. She served as president of the Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club for a year. In 1989, she was a San Francisco police commissioner, when 200 cops invaded the Castro, terrorizing AIDS activists and bystanders for hours. But this time, cops who used excessive force were held accountable, and Gwen had a seat at the table in the disciplinary hearings. The Police Officers Association, remember them, tried to get her disqualified because she had criticized them in the press. It didn't work. And I had never been to San Francisco, so I came here sight unseen. But um, I knew its reputation for openness and uh, you know, being a place where you could be who you wanted to be. And so I drove across country um, with a gay male friend of mine and uh, came into this wonderful euphoria of 1975 in San Francisco. And um, I wound up living in the Castro, um, which was just a wonderful happenstance. And um, I didn't get involved very much with movement politics or much of anything of that until 76 when Anita Bryant decided to act up out in Dade County, Florida. Like a lot of people in San Francisco got very riled about this, got very fearful about what this portended and um, just started going to big meetings and rallies that were starting to take place because of this. We've got to organize, we've got to fight back and uh, wound up at one of the meetings that was a new organization being started to confront all of this that uh, was called Coalition for Human Rights. And um, I did a lot of mouthing off about, you know, this is a campaign that's gonna be fought in the media. We really gotta have a media strategy. We've got to have, be able to respond and blah, 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 blah. And, they finally got tired of me bringing this up over and over again in the media. They said, well, why don't you do that, maybe? <laughs> and so I left there being named the media coordinator. <laughs> and I left walking away saying, 
I don't know how to be a media guardian. I wonder what I'm going to do. And so I just settled by the next morning that the one person I knew who knew how to do media, who certainly knew how to get attention and bring the attention of the press was Harvey Milk. And he lived right in my neighborhood. I saw him all the time at the bakery cafe and on the street, if not on TV. So I summed up my courage and I went to his camera shop and um, asked him shyly and politely if he'd be willing to talk to me about this. And he swooped me right in, <laughs> why yes. And so this circle, I fell into with Harvey included Bill too. And then we started widening out and we came involved with this new San Francisco Democratic Club because that was really, we could tell where we wanted to be, not the Alice B. Toklas Club. That was the group that was not accepting of Harvey and his politics. They were with this Rick Stokes guy who was running against Harvey. It was the San Francisco Demo Gay Democratic Club, the club that had gay in its title, that insisted that if you're going to be openly gay, you got to put that right in the title of your organization. Any politician that wants your endorsement, they had to use the word gay in the endorsement. They had to put that in the campaign literature. We liked where these people were coming from. And, Har and Harry was in the inner circle of that. He was not exactly a founding member, but he was pretty close. He was there probably just after the birth. <laughs> and uh, he was very much a part of the leadership circle. Um, and um, there was a president at the time, Chris Perry was the first president. And, um, but Harry was the one who recruited Bill and me to get involved with the club. We were fascinated by Harry uh, when we learned his story, being this uh, former minister uh, who had left Texas and come out to San Francisco and made this whole new life for himself and just gone through a radical change of who he had been in Texas and who he was now in California. So it sort of, we thought matched us as well. I felt like I was so different from who might certainly been in Georgia. Um, and Bill felt like that he was certainly different than who he had started out to be in his home state. So, you know, we felt, yeah, we all had that fish out of water story that pulled us together. Yeah, he could bring out the sermonizer when he needed to. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting, you know, I've seen that in ministers before growing up, you know, that this personality, this eloquence, uh, you know, comes out when they needed it to perform the role of pastor, to perform the role of the preacher. Uh, but they're not necessarily so loquacious, you know, when they're just one-on-one -on -one with people, you know, and that's kind of how Harry could be. Um, 
you know, when you came to him as, you know, just, you know, how I'd like to meet Harry Britt, he could be pretty trapped in his personality a little bit. He'd get very shy. But, um, you know, when, when people would approach him and said, I want to hear more about the Milk Club, oh, he could really expound. Uh, or when he had to get up and give a speech, it could roll like thunder. And I don't think he really all the time got his due for what he was doing. Um, uh, you know, in the end, I don't think people really counted up as much of what he got past and what he got through. And uh, the people who might remember the old fights about, you know, domestic partners and getting all of that accomplished, you know, had passed on. Um, and it become, you know, for the generation that we have today, you know, I don't think they can really quite capture, you know, how important that was at the time. I mean, now people can get married, but to be able to have any, any sort of recognition for your relationship was pretty heady stuff. <laughs> Uh, he never lost that eloquence. He could still really speak to things when he was asked to. And he gave some humdingers right towards the end that showed he still had that fighting spirit and that connection to really pull off, making things very clear to people, making things very... Um, spelling things out just so perfectly and really impacting how people felt about issues. So it was really a loss. It was really a loss when he passed away. He had a lot more to say, I think. I arrived um, in San Francisco, um, a typical immigrant from a homophobic Midwest uh, in July of 1977. Tim Wolfred was one of Harry's first aides and one of his closest friends. After serving as Harry's aide in 1979, Tim Wolfred became the first openly gay person to win election to the San Francisco Community College Board. In 1984, he was elected president of the board and went on to serve for 14 years. From 1985 to 1989, he was executive director of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. He's had a long career as a nonprofit consultant. It was after the election, and there was a meeting of the San Francisco Gay Democratic Club at McKinley School. Uh, and I had not been to a previous meeting, but I went to that meeting because Harvey was going to speak. Um, and uh, he had some dramatic things to say. I mean, for instance, he said, you know, somebody could come off over there and shoot me. Essentially, he said he could kill me, you know, it, but all of you are going to carry on if that happens to happen, um, which was pretty dramatic. But at the meeting, as I was sitting there, uh, Harry Britt came up, whom I had not met, and sat down next to me. He was the membership chair of the San Francisco. Democratic Club, and he essentially recruited me into the club. Harvey's kitchen cabinet met in our apartment, 
Department of Harry and I had to plan Harvey's reelection campaign. That was a Friday of the day after Thanksgiving. And it was very, I remember how exuberant it was because we had won the Prop 6 campaign. Harvey announced that he'd already gotten the endorsement of some of his previous opponents when he ran the year before. Uh, Terrence Hallinan, for instance, had already endorsed him and I can't remember who else. And of course, two days, three days later, he was assassinated, you know, the, that following Monday. So it was just sort of off the cliff. Um, and that was a day where Harry really shone too. He, I mean, he was distraught. I mean, he, I think it's the only time I ever saw, saw him cry was that day. I hear you. Yeah. Uh, and he cried when he talked about it in the interviews. Right. But he soldiered through. I mean, he organized, everybody came to our place and organized the whole candlelight march. And he gave a great speech that evening on the And I remember, <clears throat> I didn't know about the list that Harvey had, you know, Harvey made that tape and he named four people that he thought uh, could succeed him. Um, and I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't even aware that Harry was on the list. I probably could have guessed it. But I remember walking back from the candlelight march with a couple of friends and it just clicked in my head, you know, Harry, Harry's the one that should follow him. And I, that hadn't been said. Um, and Harry resisted it. He had to be convinced um, by other folks around him um, that Harry, you got to go for it. And, and that was Harry's style. He was always he was always there for the the disenfranchised, if you will, or the people that without privilege and were in some way being abused or oppressed or not taken care of by government uh, needs. I mean, that was really where his, his heart and soul was really, was the, the people who didn't have, who weren't privileged. You know, when he went into uh, Laguna Honda Hospital uh, and we had our first clinical meeting with the staff, uh, his clinical care team and some of the more senior members said, oh yeah, Harry, he's the one that got us rent control. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that had been almost 40 years earlier. So, I mean, for me, he's quite the model of somebody who's uncorruptible, tr true to his values, never compromised his core values, um, his progressive goals, um, and uh, you know, he. I think, in some ways, without even trying, he drew a lot of people to him. I mean, people saw him as uh, a solid, uncompromising fighter on the left, and also a, a vulnerable person. They could see his struggle at times, and his social awkwardness, he could be. Um, and I think it made him real for a lot of people. 
who, I mean, he didn't have to ask. They were there for him. I was struck too at one point, you know, I was working at the AIDS Foundation and uh, he came to me and, and that was this is a whole nother piece of his sort of character and, and foundation was being a minister. I mean, in, in many ways he was still the Methodist minister. And he came to me and said, you know, uh, if there are people with HIV disease struggling and having serious religious or emotional problems, I'm happy to speak with them, to minister to them. He said, uh, please, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to be able to serve and do that way, do, it, do that for people with HIV. Um, so it was very, yeah, very touched by that, that he would seek that, that role out. And, you know, his speeches, thinking back, some of them were very much sermons, you know, sermons on love and community and being there for one another. Um, even that last one he gave uh, on the 40th anniversary of the assassinations. Uh, I mean, it, that was, he was really, that was him. He was pouring himself out there. My name is Tom Amiano, and I've lived in San Francisco since 1962. Queer school teacher, comedian, and political extraordinaire, Tom Amiano was elected to the San Francisco School Board in 1990 and the Board of Supervisors in 1994, where he led the fight to create the Healthy San Francisco program, making the city the first in the nation to provide universal health care. In 1998, after winning the most votes in a citywide election, he became president of the Board of Supervisors, following in Harry Britt's footsteps. The next year, he ran a write-in campaign that forced the powerful Mayor Willie Brown into a runoff. Then he took Harvey's queer progressive agenda to Sacramento, serving in the Assembly for six years. In 2009, when Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger you know, the Terminator, made a surprise appearance at a Democratic Party banquet, Tom stood up and yelled, Kiss my gay ass! Harvey must have been smiling down on him that day. You can read all about it and more in his sassy memoir called Kiss My Gay Ass. And I moved to the Castro uh, around 1968. So milk became visible. You could walk down uh, 18th and uh, Castro and you would see milk out there uh, posting flyers or, or whatever. And then when he declared for office, um, I liked the kind of things uh, he said and uh, I started to like the people around him. Now, Harry was not one of the more visible ones because that's not Harry's way. Um, uh, and so really, the first time I got to know and meet Harry was after the murders. Um, you know, we were all in, in shock and we were uh, feeling numb. And um, the, the day of the murders, uh, we needed some focus. We needed some place to go or 
uh, it, we were so confused and so grief-stricken and so angry. And someone said, well, we understand that Harry Britt's house is going to be a gathering point. So, and he lived on 16th and Castro, and actually I lived up the block. Uh, so we did assemble there, a lot of us, dozens and dozens of us. And I think Tim Wilford, who was later on the community college board, um, was Harry's roommate at the time. And I remember him and Harry talking at the top of the stairs, the outside stairs, and uh, um, kind of giving direction uh, to where this whole thing might go. And very smartly, Harry gave people tasks. So you would go do something rather than be fretting. And, um, and my task was to go buy black ribbon so people could tell, which is a great thing for a teacher. It's that kind of thing. And I remember going to Cliff's Hardware and I only had a certain amount of cash being a teacher and they got it right away. And they gave me this great um, you know, amount of black ribbon. Then we returned to the house and then people uh, who they were doing other things, but well, we were cutting up the ribbon so people could have armbands. And that was the first experience with Harry and it was very calming. Uh, I mean, you can imagine the world had just turned upside down and there was fear too. Uh, you know, uh, imagine today with all the mass shootings where you, where you might extrapolate that. But, um, you know, I think uh, every queer uh, knew what that feeling was like about being threatened, mocked, and, and having violence perpetrated against you. Throughout the uh, happenings um, with the, uh, what was referred to uh, later on as the uh, Dan White riots, uh, Harry was definitely a, a voice of sanity, but also not recapitulation. His style was way different than Harvey's, you know. Uh, he was definitely measured. Uh, you could tell there was a humility about the guy. Um, uh, but when he was on fire, he wasn't on fire. And there are many, many times, even after Harvey and uh, Moscone's murder, where, uh, you know, homophobia was on the line. And, you know, some of our, in quotes, allies were a little wishy-washy. And then Harry would stand up and make the best speech. The, he was a great speechifier. Uh, and, and again, you might not know that because, you know, how he presented was low key uh, and measured. And then, so I always, always was inspired and loved when he spoke, especially about LGBT, which was still, and uh, like now, you know, in, in its uh, nascent uh, form. Uh, they had killed the messenger, but they hadn't killed the message. And, you know, Harry fulfilled that uh, legacy. And he continued to be an uh, admirable public servant, uh, caring a lot for those. He connected the dots like ha uh, Harvey did. It's, it's really poor people, not just gay people, but poor Black people and poor seniors. And uh, um, he did a monumental job uh, considering the odds against him. One time out of the blue, I got a phone call and it was said, this is Harry. I go, hi, Harry, what's up? Who died? What? And he said, you know what? I hope you're considering running for the school board. Well, that blew me away because actually I had been thinking of that and maybe discussed it in the, in the most rudimentary way with, uh, you know, some close friends. 
for so for him to pick up on that how he did it um always amazed me and really that's all i needed and i said holy shit harry bridge just told me i should talk, should run for fucking school board um and uh, and the rest is history as they say and then uh, a very moving moment was um uh, because we didn't have district elections yet, which I then reintroduced, uh, it was a citywide elected. And like Harry, even though I was controversial and got trashed a lot, I uh, came in number one, proving again that the electorate in San Francisco is quite different. Than, um, and Harry came to the swearing in and he took the microphone and you know, I'm breaking up now. We, he made a beautiful speech about what it was and, and how he just loved seeing me behind that podium and what it meant. Um, so, you know, uh, that's always stayed with me uh, throughout the political career that I've had. And, you know, thank God for Harry. My name is Sharon Johnson, and I was born and raised in San Francisco. Sharon Johnson served as Harry Britt's aide during the worst days of the AIDS pandemic. A single mother of five children, she has been a lifelong advocate for social, economic, and criminal justice in the city where she was born and raised. And I was raised with the message as a working class family, don't let anybody ever take anything away from you or you will never get it back. Harry Britt was the absolute best person in the world to work with. Um, he understood as, as a single mom of five children, he understood priorities. He understood issues. He understood compassion. He had absolutely no personal ego uh, involved in his, uh, in his being appointed to uh, uh, the Board of Supervisors. He was always, always, always uh, indebted to Harvey and wanted to make sure that he could live up to Harvey's uh, uh, mission. And so to work with Harry was like working with the best uh, dream team in the whole world. Everybody in that office that he brought in, we all worked together for the betterment of the community. And, and there was no, um, backstabbing, unlike how it is in most political offices, we would have our fights, our arguments, our disagreements, but at the end of the day, we hugged one another, we ate with one another, we laughed with one another, we recognized one another's oppression and moved forward. Uh, it was, and that came through Harry's leadership. He would often say to us, if you can't get along with one another, how can we expect the world to get along with one another? He, um, I started this out with saying that he had a, a, Harry had a wonderful way of seeing human behavior. 
And in that human behavior, he had instincts to uh, know who it was that he, he could trust, who he could work with, uh, and, and, um, and what issues were going to be good issues and what issues weren't. And he easily wrote off a lot of issues that might have been something that would enhance his a wider range of exposure to him, but you know it wasn't. If it wasn't of a moral value, he wasn't interested in it. I this is this is just my own personal experience of Harry. Is that I hope that his legacy is known as being one of the nicest, kindest human beings in existence that he saw a wrong and he wanted to make it right. He saw somebody suffering and he wanted to be of use. He, he would have rather taken the harm on himself than to see anybody else harmed unless he was pissed off at them. Okay, so let's, let's you know, I don't want to put him into sainthood. I mean, there were plenty of people he was really angry with who, you know, didn't do him good, didn't do the community good. And that's not the right language, not the right word, I know. But it, it, uh, but yes, he has a legacy of rent control, Prop A, domestic partners, uh, health care, workers' rights, uh, environmental aids, uh, money. Uh, he's done all those good things. But he was the best teacher that was around if you wanted to learn about what's really, truly important in life. So I'm Chris Brandenberger. I came to the Bay Area in 1967 to go to school at Cal from the East Coast. Um, it was a good time to be around there, lots of political activity and whatnot. While she was dropping in and out of college at Berkeley, Chris Brandenberger got a job at a workshop that repaired vintage race cars and developed a passion for electromechanical mysteries. She eventually finished her degree and went on to earn a PhD. After teaching at New College, she moved on to the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology and then to the California Institute of Integral Studies, where she directs the School of Undergraduate Studies. But I did start teaching at New College as an adjunct, and I was teaching basically a poetry class um, for, you know, why was Dante an activist? You know, <laughs> I was teaching those kinds of classes. And... Um, and I couldn't figure the place out. It was just so crazy. And um, so I kept going to the faculty meetings because I was self-employed. I could, I could do that. I was just really trying to make sense of the thing. And um, that's where I first met Harry in, in Harry Britt in that kind of context. And um, I always appreciated that he was um, quite snarky in the meetings, um, you know, very wait a minute, kind of thing. And Harry was a true intellectual who would have called himself an introvert. And 
but he was the person engaging everybody. He was the person who showed up every Saturday morning um, on Valencia Street in front of the cafe or in the cafe and was meeting with prospective students, with current students. Harry was the glue that held the whole thing together. But he was so kind to students and others. I mean, he was a generous person that he, and he always made a joke about that. That's another thing, fabulous sense of humor. Um, but he would always joke about that and deflect any kind of praise. It was very hard to praise Harry. Um, and I remember saying to him, you're not gonna like this Harry, but I, I wanna tell you how wonderful you are and just, you're gonna have to take it. And I did it in some public meeting and he was just like appalled. Um, but he was, he was kind, generous, caring, and not just like treacly caring. He cared from, as you say, that kind of moral center and a good heart and fine mind. He, he cared holistically, which is very interesting for a guy who was a head on a stick, basically, in most people's knowing of him. My name is Randy Alfred. I came to the Bay Area in 1967 to study sociology at Cal Berkeley. Although I probably should have gone to somewhere else if I was gonna study it because I really came out here because it was Berkeley in the 60s. Randy Alfred has been giving good sound bites and insightful reporting on the queer beat in San Francisco for nearly five decades. In 1975, he became news editor for the bi-weekly gay paper, The San Francisco Sentinel, and editor-in-chief in 1982. While gay and mainstream media outlets covered the emerging HIV-AIDS pandemic sporadically, or not at all, Randy provided the community consistent and objective reporting from the front lines. From 1979 to 1984, he produced and hosted The Gay Life, a weekly radio show. This is The Gay Life on KSAN. Good morning, I'm Randy Alfred. And it's time for our regular weekly visit with Supervisor Harry Britt at his City Hall office. Good morning, Harry. Good morning, Randy. He's the author of Mad Science, Einstein's Fridge, Dewar's Flask, Mach's Speed, and 362 Other Inventions and Discoveries That Made Our World. And then I moved to San Francisco in 1975. Uh, after a year and a half of uh, both pleasure commuting into the city for my newly discovered gay life and political commuting into the city. So between doing politics and, and meeting guys, I was in four or five times a week and I thought, time to move. Um, <clears throat> at that point, I was already working for the Sentinel <clears throat> excuse me, which was a bi-weekly gay, as it was defined then, newspaper. I met Harry in the Milk Club before it had that name, probably during the, the, the Prop 6 campaign. And um, he was one of a cadre of uh, very hard, dedicated hard workers, dedicated and smart, like Gwen Craig and, and uh, Bill Krauss and 
others. One of the things I've said about Feinstein through her mayoral career and in the Senate is she does understand that there are people in America and in her constituency who are not like her, but I don't think she understands that there are people who don't want to be, be like her. Harry naturally was very appealing to her or the part of Harry that she wanted to see, which was the ministerially trained community-oriented political worker who had, who was a letter carrier as his day job, but he was really interested in communities and civil rights struggles. And so she appointed him. And there was a Saturday when I remembered calling him because there was a rumor around that the decision had been made and it was probably him. And I phoned and Tim Wolford, the roommate, Tim was his roommate at the time, was on the other end of the line. And I asked, hi, Tim, it's Randy, is, is Harry there? No, he's out, he's not here. Well, do you know when he's coming back? I'm not sure, said Tim, he's out buying a new suit. And I said, that's all I need to know. I mean, and I remember telling Harry between sometime, it may have been actually on the day he wound up getting sworn in, I said, you remember Thoreau's advice to beware of all enterprises re requiring new clothes. And he said, yes, I'll keep it in mind. There's only one person who could have prevented violence that night, and that was Harvey Milk. Harry's response, I thought, at the beginning was more overdone than was politics, more stronger than was politic, but truthful. And as the days and weeks and months and years have passed, I've thought, but it was right on. We had every right to be angry. The relationship to the POA. Um, when he decided to make that opening, actually he called me and he took me and we had coffee at Lobo M. He explained it all, I asked some questions, I wasn't. And then the more I thought about it, the more I read about it, and I eventually wrote a column called Preacher Harry Goofs Again which kind of made things rough between us for rather a long time. Police have a monopoly on the legitimate use of force in civil society. And because of that, they're different from other unions. And I think they need to be restricted to wages, benefits, and hours, not policy. I would say as a politician, one of his disabilities was a very low tolerance for dishonesty, including for himself. We would have none of JFK's dream if it weren't for Lyndon Johnson. And we'd have little of Harvey's dream if it weren't for Harry Britt. How's that for a soundbite, Will?
And there were others. Harry's friend, Carol Migdon, was elected supervisor in 1991 and went on to serve terms in the State Assembly and the State Senate. Rick Ruvalo, another one of Harry's aides, was appointed San Francisco's Clean City Coordinator and today is an international expert on electric vehicles. David Weissman became an Emmy Award-nominated filmmaker. If you want a deep dive into the queer culture of San Francisco in the 1970s, don't miss his film, The Coquettes. And Jean Harris, who as Harry's aide, spearheaded the fight for domestic partners and yelled at everyone, including Diane Feinstein. She went on to serve as deputy mayor and deputy director of the San Francisco Health Department and helped start Equality California, today the nation's largest statewide LGBTQ rights organization. The generation of activists and leaders Harry Britt encouraged continued the fight for the progressive issues Harvey Milk believed in. And now, it's up to a new generation, that's you, to keep Harvey's dream alive. I stood for more than just a candidate. I think there was a strong differential between somebody like Rick Stokes and myself. I have never considered myself a candidate. I have always considered myself part of a movement, part of a candidacy. I considered the movement the candidate. I think there's a delineation of those who use the movement and those who are part of the movement. And I think I was part of the gay movement. And I think that uh, I wish I had time to explain everything I did. Almost everything was done in the eyes of the gay movement. And I would suggest and urge and hope that the mayor would understand that distinction and that he would appoint to somebody, somebody to my position who also came from the movement rather than used the movement or never understood the movement. And I've talked about this with several people and they know my thoughts. And I just put them on tape so that there's no doubt in anybody's mind of my thoughts. The other aspect of this tape is the obvious is what should happen if there is a assassination, and that is, cannot prevent it. some people from getting angry and frustrated and mad, but I hope they would take that anger and frustration and madness instead of demonstrating or anything of that type, I would hope they take it to positive, and I would hope five, ten, a hundred thousand would rise. I'd love to see every gay doctor come out, I'd love to see every gay lawyer, every gay judge, every gay bureaucrat, every gay architect come out, stand up. Let the world know that would do more to end prejudice overnight than anybody could have imagined. Urge them to do that. Urge them. Come out. It's only that way we start to achieve our rights. The legend of Harvey Milk has been told with old Hollywood tropes. Queer characters always die tragic deaths. There's the meteoric rise, the overreach, the violent ending. 
it's good drama. But the real story of Harvey Milk is that he never died thanks to Harry Britt. Harry took the hodgepodge of ideas Harvey tossed out and turned them into an agenda, an agenda for racial and economic justice, housing and health care as human rights, and an agenda for queer power. These ideals, hammered out in San Francisco in the 1980s, are now part of the mainstream of the Democratic Party. I'm so proud of Harry. He built a queer movement in San Francisco that was consistently progressive, and he got things done. Under Harry's leadership, queers transformed the political system, stymied the interests that wanted to control the city, and created an alternative power base relying on queers, neighborhood associations, unions, and racial and ethnic communities. So if you're a young queer who wants to create change, Harvey Milk and Harry Britt have a lot to teach you. Harvey had been a man of the people. He could work a room, strut on the runway with Sylvester, dress up like a clown and ride a cable car, step and fake dog poop, and get himself on the front page. In 1978, my politics leaned way over to the left. I had my doubts about electoral politics. But I saw what Harvey could do as an elected official. And I saw him around, on Castro Street, in bars raising funds. I dated a guy who used to hook up with him. So let's just say I knew what he liked in bed. Seeing him on the street mattered. Harry Britt dreaded attention. Nothing came easy. He once told me, the healthy individual is not the person who's got it together, but the person who's just discovered that they don't have it together. This is what inspires me most. Harry Britt struggled to get it together his entire life. He pushed himself through his social anxiety. He used what he called his strange brain to figure out what made people tick, what political strategies would work, who might be an ally on a given issue, and he knew how to count the votes. If he could do it, so can I, and so can you. After all the hours I spent talking with Harry, it became clear to me that Harvey's death was the emotional crater of his life. There was no closure. Devoting his life to keeping Harvey's dreams alive kept the despair at bay. But after all, Harvey Milk had given him his life. The, the fact that I have been able to accomplish anything, nothing big, not, you know, domestic partners, but just getting through the day. Uh, I never expected to live to be 71 years old. Uh, I'm still not so sure about 72, but, you know, uh, is in very large part... Um, a tribute to Harvey Milk, because uh, part of his greatness was not that he just found the smartest, best people in the world and offered them jobs. It was that he took some screwed up people and helped them to see themselves as having within themselves some strengths and some powers and some beauty uh, that gave them motivation and, and belief in themselves. And that's, there aren't too many better examples of that than me. But let's give Harvey the final word. Here's what he said about his friend in the famous tape he made a few days after he was elected, 
when he predicted his assassination and named his choices for successor. The third choice I would have would be Harry Britt, who most people don't know, but I've watched Harry, and Harry's been in three, involved with three campaigns, and Harry knows where I am, and I've watched Harry grow and grow and grow and become more articulate and more articulate, and some people may find him wrong because he is somewhat emotional, but by God, what fabulous emotions. And a very, very dedicated and strong person. One who will not be pushed around. One who understands where the movement is and where it must go. And someday we'll be there anyhow. Harry Britt did indeed see where the movement must go, and he took us there. So thank you, Harvey. Thank you for choosing Harry Britt. May you both rest in power. Thank you so much for listening to Give Him Hell, Harry, the man who kept Harvey Milk's dream alive. I'll leave you now with one more clip from Harry, his last public speech. It's a rainy night on November 28, 2018, the 40th anniversary of the candlelight march for Mayor George Moscone and Harvey Milk. A few hundred people have gathered at Castro Street and Market, and Harvey's old friends take turns speaking. Anne Cronenberg, Tom Amiano, Gwen Craig, Tim Wolfred, Cleve Jones. Now, at the age of 80, Harry Britt gingerly steps up to the microphone. Now, this was recorded on a cell phone, and it's a little hard to hear at first. He starts by saying, Hi, I'm Harry Britt, and I was a friend of Harvey Milk, and that was one of the greatest honors of my life, one of the greatest learning experiences of my life.
would come out in the fussy rain and celebrate because we have been lucky indeed to live where we do, when we do. A job ahead of us is still very, very hard. God damn it, we had Harvey. And if you can't win with Harvey, you don't deserve to win at all. Give 'em Hell Harry is written and hosted by Will Roscoe. She's produced by me, Devlin Camp. You can find tons of info about this show and other Queer Serial podcasts at QueerSerial.com. And follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Serial for all sorts of images from the stories on the podcast. And for bonus episodes and lots of queer history deep dives, join me over on Patreon. You can support Queer Serial for $3 a month and get the entire backlog of bonus episodes, including the new bonus podcast, The White Knight Riot Interviews. Coming up over the next several weeks, we're bringing you the full cuts of today's interviews by Will Roscoe with activist Gwen Craig, San Francisco AIDS Foundation director Tim Wolfred, supervisor Tom Amiato, Harry Britt's aide Sharon Johnson, and Gay Life host Randy Alfred. And with David Weissman, who you didn't hear on today's episode. He worked in Harry Britt's office and went on to make some incredible gay history documentaries. Listen to those interviews in addition to my bonus series, Infamous Crimes, The White Knight Riot Interviews, only on my Patreon. Also over on my Patreon, you can listen to tons of queer history bonus podcasts, dive into fabulous research from the queer archives with me, and you'll find all sorts of other homo history odds and ends. There's a link in the episode notes, patreon.com slash queer serial. Thank you all so much for your support, preserving and sharing queer history. And thanks for listening to all seven episodes of Give Em Hell, Harry. Hey, Miss Thing. Hey, lady. How does it feel to be preserving this essential piece of gay history, of Harvey's story, of Harry's story, of our community's movement? Uh, personally, it's it's deeply meaningful to be able to um, make uh, a contribution in an area. It has to do with people that I've admired all my life. Harvey, Harry, the folks around him that I got to interview, Gwen, Tim, Tom Amiano, people I have admired since I got to San Francisco. And so it's personally really gratifying to be able to kind of feel like um, I'm contributing and I'm in the ranks of that in a way. Although, you know, my relationship with Harvey and even Harry was not that huge. But, um, uh, you know, I I did know them, and that's a a, a great honor. Um, You know, uh, sometime around 2015, I went to the Czech Republic. I was invited to to speak about Native Two Spirits, and at a city called Olomouc. So they're they're now driving me from Olomouc back to Prague, and there is a young Czech guy, adorable straight guy, who's driving the van. And we start, like, chit-chatting. Maybe there was silence and his typical kitty needs to fill the silence with words or something like that. So I'm from San Francisco. Yes, I knew Harvey Milk, this, that, and the other thing. I told my stories. Uh, And when we get out of the van um, in Prague, he pulls my suitcase out and he says, and shakes my hand and he says, it's an honor to know, have met someone who knows Harvey Milk. His story, the film, is all over the world. And um, I am so lucky to have been in a time and a place um, to see it and to be a small part of it. 
Were there, um, that's my last question. Were there other gay supervisors that you liked after Harry that you voted for, that you supported? Any, were any big names that you loved? Well, um, I thought well of Carol Migdon because I knew her. I, I uh, felt pretty good about Roberta Actenberg, although I did not know her that much. I adore Tom Amiano. He's just awesome mm-hmm. uh, in his role. Raphael Mandelbaum is um, in the line, in the line that goes from Harvey to Harry, uh, and he's current supervisor running for re-election right now in 2021-22. Register to vote. Register to vote. Um, yeah. Uh, David Campos was supervisor, uh, gay Latino man. Mm-hmm. Again, he's in the line. Lovely. That's all I've got, girl. Thanks for chatting. Thanks for having me, as they say, as if you had me. But <laughs> it could have another uh, meaning. Inquiring minds will have to wonder. Ooh, let's keep the <laughs> mystique alive. <laughs> okay, I want my rig back. <laughs> Big thanks to our fabulous sponsors. The Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club. The One Archives Foundation. The GLBT Historical Society. The James C. Hormel LGBTQIA Center at the San Francisco Public Library. You got it. (laughs) Oh, Smiter. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. The Making Gay History Podcast. Shaping San Francisco. And Lady Joey Kane and our fiscal sponsor, Calamus. And everyone who supported the show on Indiegogo. Especially those on the highest tier, including Susan Gray, a.k.a. Marianne Singleton. Sam Tupperman-Gelfont and Pat Gorley. Sharon P. Johnson, with big hugs. And an anonymous, longtime supporter of Queer Serial. Thanks, Mattachino. This podcast is produced with the support of the Murray Hong Family Trust, in honor of the legacy of Stephen O. Murray. And thanks to Cass Brayton at the Archives of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. You can support the sisters at thesisters.org. And thanks to Anchor SF for providing a fantastic recording studio for the podcast. Special thanks also to Daniel Nicoletta for providing photos and Harvey Milk's complete audio will. Audio is used courtesy of the GLBT Historical Society, KPIX-TV, and KQED San Francisco. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening! Very cute. This is The Gay Life on KSAN in San Francisco. We're presenting highlights of the 1981 International Lesbian and Gay Freedom Day celebration. As I've traveled around the country and done my political job, I'm really impressed that we live in a country that is very, very, very fearful. Not, I think, a country that's moving to the right, but a nation of people that are very much afraid. A nation that does not understand homosexuality, that does not understand sexism, that does not understand why we now live in a world that America cannot dominate militarily and economically. A nation that does not understand a future for which we are not prepared. And everywhere I go, I see fear, except when I come home to San Francisco and experience the strength and the power and the beauty not only of our community, but of this wonderful city that has given us our home. 
And it, it seems to me that I'm not going to be talking about what we need, but about how very badly America needs us. How very badly America needs to come to terms with a real history of our country and the struggle for freedom that it has been. Not the romantic myths of white male supremacy that Ronald Reagan is pushing, but the facts of the Native Americans who struggled to build lives on this continent, of immigrants who came here all over the world escaping religious oppression, of people like Brigham Young who came and crossed the nation in order that their lifestyle could find acceptance. That is the history of our country, and it's a history that Ronald Reagan knows nothing about. And right now, the community that is fighting most aggressively and most courageously for its freedom is the community of women and the community of lesbians and gay men who are similarly, who are similarly denied our legitimate needs as human beings. America needs so badly to allow the participation of women of racial minorities, of human beings who are disabled or who are old or who are different, to share their experience as something different from the kind of one way of looking at the world mentality of the religious right. Harvey Milk laid down his life for his friends, and in the process, a family was created. I've been to Portland, which is a wonderful town, and New York, which ain't bad, and Indianapolis, which is better than what you've heard, and Philadelphia, and Dallas, and Houston, but this town is something not to be believed. I love you. Let's make it an even greater San Francisco in the future. Thank you.